0: Somehow everyone seems to know that Britain went to war in 1914 because the Archduke Franz Ferdinand was assassinated. It's like some kind of family heirloom. Problem is, it just wasn't like that. Hello, good to see you at the History Café. This is where we come to talk usually about historical stories everyone knows. Just want to try out some new ideas... I'm John Rosebank.
1: And I'm Penelope Middlebow. At the History Café, we revisit stories that have got stuck in our collective memory, but just don't look quite right to us.
0: So get yourself a coffee, pull up a chair, and let's see what happens.
1: On the 28th of June, 1914... The Archduke was murdered in Sarajevo by Serbian terrorists who called themselves the Black Hand. Now, in actual fact, the Austrian Archduke had no business being in the Bosnian capital that day because it was the Serbians' national day, the anniversary of the medieval Battle of Kosovo, and the Serbians were extremely exercised by the fact that the Austrians had unilaterally annexed Bosnia in 1908. So far from a sedate royal tour of Bosnia, the Archduke's visit was a provocative political statement. Look at us, it said to the Serbians, we took Bosnia. You're next. The odd thing is that privately the Grand Duke himself was rather sympathetic to the Serbians. But that's another
0: whole story and we're getting sidetracked. Well, the usual version of the story continues that the Austrians eventually used the assassination as an excuse to invade Serbia problem was that the Russians had undertaken to defend Serbia. Well, the Germans supported the Austrians, but the French were allied to the Russians. So Germany invaded France by way of Belgium. And that's why the British jumped in, <laughs> because they'd signed a treaty in 1839 to defend the Belgians.
1: Tell it like that, and it sounds like a farce. Except that by November 1918, 37 million people had been killed or wounded.
0: As a bald account of what happened in June and August 1914, it does have, I suppose, the quality of being, well, bald. But it's a million miles from explaining why the British ever got involved in the First World War. Whatever went on in Serbia, one of many small Balkan states, nobody can ever seem to explain what on earth it had to do with the British. Their empire was far away in Africa, the Middle East, India, Australia, Even if the Germans and French got involved, couldn't the British have sat back and grown rich selling weapons to both sides? That, after all, is exactly what the Americans did.
1: The popular version supposes that the British were obliged to support the French and Russians because they were allied to them in the so-called Triple Entente. But it's not true. The colonial secretary in 1914 was Viscount Louis Harcourt, known as Lulu, Among his papers, there's a letter he wrote in January 1914 to his friend, the Foreign Secretary Edward Grey, ticking him off even for uttering the words Triple Entente. No such thing has ever been considered or approved by the Cabinet, he wrote. In fact, the thing does not exist. And Lulu Harcourt was correct. The Triple Entente didn't exist. Britain had signed an Entente or Agreement with France in 1904 and a Convention with Russia in 1907. These two agreements settled various long-running disputes between Britain and France and between Britain and Russia over their various colonies, but they said nothing whatsoever about fighting for each other in a war. The problem was, as Harcourt roundly told his friend Edward Grey, if Grey kept on talking about a Triple Entente, it would give France and Russia, quotes, the expectation of British support as a right against Germany. And if Britain didn't then back them, Britain would be denounced, as she had often been in the past, as a treacherous, unreliable ally, the so-called perfidious Albion. The reality was that Britain was under no obligation to lift a finger to help France or Russia, let alone sacrifice a
0: generation of its young men. Nor is there anything in the old story you often hear about going to war in defence of Belgium. Now it's true that in August 1914 the British government loudly proclaimed that the defence of poor little Belgium was its casa's belly, its formal reason for going to war. But the Treaty of London that Britain had signed with France and Germany and various others in 1839 did not commit any of them to do anything at all for the Belgians. In fact, the treaty was so confusingly written it had become a joke at the Foreign Office. When the British government got it off the shelf and took a close look at it in July 1914, they decided that Britain was under no legal obligation to do anything at all. The Prime Minister, Herbert Asquith, wrote to the King George V, telling him exactly that.
1: The plain conclusion from all of this is that the British were not obliged to join the war in 1914. And we can go a step further. What we were never taught in school is that on the 1st of August 1914, just three days before war broke out, the Germans offered not to attack France or Belgium if the British and French stayed neutral in the coming conflict. Now, this episode is controversial, and we shall have to take a proper look at it later, but it was, we argue, a serious German offer. For a few hours, there was the chance it might have flowered into a genuine deal. Had the British made the slightest effort to follow the German offer up, the long carnage of the trenches might well never have
0: happened. But well, What's most bizarre of all about the outbreak of war in 1914 is that the Germans were the last nation many Edwardian British people would have predicted going to war against. When well, it really didn't make any sense. Britain was not obliged to go to war in 1914 to defend Belgium, France or anyone else. The Germans offered not to invade Belgium or France if the British and the French kept out. Going to war against Germany in August 1914, in fact, made no sense. Now, there are plenty of people who will be surprised, even outraged that we say that. Surely Germany was Britain's age-old enemy. Surely she was engaged in a dangerous arms race, a naval race against Britain. Well, that, of course, was the story that governments in 1914 and after the war wanted the British people to believe. But, as we shall see, it's simply nonsense.
1: Let's start at the personal level. The British upper classes usually had German governesses. The reason was that they believed French ones would get pregnant. And really, in some stately homes, the children had to practice speaking German every day except Christmas. Downstairs, their parents showed off their pricey German Meissen and Dresden, China, and in Germany, refined households spread Oxford marmalade or English mustard on their Wedgwood plates with Sheffield cutlery. Richard Milton's book, Best of Enemies, Britain and Germany, has a lot of fun showing how Germany was Britain's most important trading partner. For years, Britons and Germans had bought and sold each other's inventions and specialties. Britain imported German Nivea, Persil, Aspirin, Siemens electrical goods, Leica cameras, Adler typewriters, Daimler and Mercedes cars. They put their children into kindergartens and bought little darlings German toy trains and stuffed stiff bears. The Germans rather more impressively commissioned full-sized British-built trains and steamships and, more significantly, supplied Britain with the steel to make
0: more. Holidaying Brits imitated their German hosts in a rather more low-key manner. After Thomas Cook had first introduced Britons to sightseeing tours, it became fashionable to go hiking with rucksacks and alpenstocks, which were adjustable walking poles. Only the Tyrolean hat with the feather, which originally completed the look, has not lasted. <laughs> the British-German Friendship Society, founded in 1911, was popular with British businessmen, particularly manufacturers and Lancashire mill owners also with mapmakers, publishers and printers who worked so closely with their German counterparts they have been described as a kind of Freemasonry. But
1: to be serious, this was serious. It was serious economics, and we know because of what was being discussed in Cabinet. Now, you weren't supposed to take notes in Cabinet meetings, but Colonial Secretary Lulu Harcourt did it anyway, scribbling in pencil on the back of official papers. And that's lucky for us. His scribblings are now in the Bodleian Library in Oxford, And they're a goldmine for what was going on behind closed doors in the Cabinet in the weeks before the first war.
0: On the 31st of July 1914, just a few days before war broke out, Harcourt's illegal notes report how the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Lloyd George, told the Cabinet that he'd canvassed the city and business opinion on going to war. Harcourt noted, quote, Governors of Bank of England and all city opinion are gas at any possibility over our being dragged in. Businessmen in North say, if we were, all mills, factories, mines, shipping, etc. stopped. Wholesale unemployment, population starving, because no wages to buy food. One man said to him, they won't be able to buy food, but they will get it. England will be in revolution in a week. Well, we know also that the governor of the Bank of England had pleaded with ministers, quotes, to keep us out of it. We shall be ruined if we're dragged in. He had tears in his eyes. And of course he was Right.
1: Two days before war was declared, the Times carried an angry letter from Norman Angel. He was best known for his 1910 book, The Great Illusion, which argued that the countries of Europe were so tied together by finance and trade that war would do nothing but ruin them all. In the 1930s, he was awarded the Nobel Peace Prize. So in his letter to the Times, published on the 2nd of August 1914, Angel pointed out the particular nonsense of going to war on the side of Russia. He said it was a shockingly backward farming nation ruled by a medieval monarchy. So why go to war for the Russians, against Germany, whom many regarded as the most advanced and civilised nation on earth? Quotes, Will a dominant Slavonic federation of, say, 200 million autocratically governed people with a very rudimentary civilization but heavily equipped for military aggression be a less dangerous factor in Europe... Than a dominant Germany of 65 million, highly civilised and mainly given to the arts of trade and commerce. Well, many British, including most government ministers, thought Angel had a point.
0: Why then, on Tuesday, the 4th of August 1914, did Britain declare war for the mistrusted Russians and against the Germans, their closest European friends? Well, the story turns out to begin in December 1905, and Shady, not to say secret, meetings held in London.
1: Why did Britain declare war on Germany in 1914 when the two nations had the strongest grounds for friendship? Well, we need to start in 1905, and some covert, not to say furtive, meetings in London. On the 20th of December 1905, the rather overweight Colonel James Grierson, known as Jimmy Grierson, met the rather more svelte Colonel Victor Huguet, the French military attaché, in London. Now, Grierson was the British Army's Director of Military Operations. Hugay didn't like British soldiers, he thought them too proud to listen to foreigners, and inclined to drift along without thinking strategically. How chillingly right he proved to be once the war began. Anyway, Hugay's rather cloak-and-dagger talks with Grierson were discussed as long ago as 1962 by the historian Barbara Tuchman in her classic book, The Guns of August, which Kennedy was reading during the Cuba Missile Crisis, but we'll come to that in another series. Recent historians haven't paid much attention to what she said about Grierson's talks, The only book in the last few years that tries to unearth significantly more evidence about the talks that followed is a book called The Hidden Perspective by a former British Foreign
0: Secretary, David Owen. Jimmy Grierson was the man in charge of British army war plans and in 1905 he was facing a serious problem. Between 1899 and 1902 the British army had fought a disastrous, if eventually successful, war in South Africa against a ragtag army of burrs or farmers. The Boer War had revealed all too alarmingly that the British army was far too small and far too inadequate to defend Britain's empire, spread out as it was across Africa, Asia and India. Then, in 1903, a government inquiry had reported that the British Royal Navy had grown so strong that there was not any army in the world that would be able to cross the Channel and invade Britain, which was, and would long remain, as we see in our series on 1940, patently true. These two factors were very awkward for Grierson. What on earth was the point of having a British army at all if it couldn't defend the empire and wasn't necessary to defend Britain? What Grierson urgently needed to do in 1905 was to come up with a new set of army objectives.
1: In April and May 1905, Grierson and his senior officers played a theoretical war game. What would happen if, as seemed increasingly likely, there was a general European war? Grierson's friend... Colonel William Robertson, known as Wally Robertson, played the part of Germany and attacked France. Robertson had guessed correctly that the Germans would be planning to attack through Belgium. As the officers went on with their game, those playing the British calculated, however, that sending a small British army to assist the French would tip the balance against the Germans. In fact, it would secure the British army a rather quick, satisfying and politically useful victory. So that summer, in 1905, Wally and Jimmy toured the Belgian border to reconnoitre where, if any of this ever happened in real life, the British might be able to send this small British army. Colonel Huguet seems to have shared a certain amount of French intelligence with them. It revealed the German planners were indeed deep in the details of a plan to attack France through Belgium, what every school textbook nowadays knows as the German Schlieffen Plan, which we'll come back to in a little while
0: for Grierson, teaming up with the French, who were Britain's oldest and bitterest enemy, to inflict a conveniently rapid defeat on the Germans seems to have appeared increasingly inviting. It would, after all, be the perfect opportunity to regain the prestige the British army had so embarrassingly lost in South Africa. It would give the army, in the words of historian Simon Higgins, a new, quote, focus and a purpose it might, more to the point, prevent the politicians drawing the obvious conclusion from the 1903 inquiry and cutting army budgets. And, to be fair, there were some, especially in the Foreign Office, as we shall see, who had begun to view Germany's growing army and navy with suspicion, though whether they were actually justified is another question to which we'll return. Anyway, by December 1905, Grierson knew that he had to move fast if his plan to fight against the Germans, alongside the French, were ever to become a reality. A new Liberal government had just taken over. It was lively committed to cutting defence costs and spending the money instead on welfare reforms. Mm. Grierson was now seriously concerned that the British army would be slashed if he couldn't prove that it had a vital role to play.
1: On the 16th of December 1905, the new Liberal government called a general election for January 1906. In the course of the following week, Grayson therefore seems to have fixed a series of meetings with Hooget so that they could quickly come up with a viable plan ready to present when the politicians were back from fighting for their seats.
0: At this point enter stage right, Lieutenant Charles Accord Rappington. Now Rappington was a disgraced army officer who'd once worked in military intelligence, but he was now the military correspondent of the Times. Perhaps he was brought in following an article he'd written on the 27th of December 1905, arguing that Germany's growing army and navy should be regarded with active suspicion. But Reppington had been snapping at the heels of the British army and the Foreign Office for years, and his job at the Times gave him the perfect cover for dinners with the French military attaché. In his rather self-important post-war account, he claimed that he and Huguet were already, quote, close friends. Well, on Wednesday, the 3rd of January, 1906, Grierson invited Rappington to lunch at The Rag, the Army and Navy Club in St James Square. Grierson apparently talked Rappington into acting as a discreet back channel while the new Liberal government bedded in. You can just picture Grierson massaging Rappington's not inconsiderable ego. The truth was that Rappington was being used as a pawn in the scheme that Grierson had now been hatching, with a wink and a nod from senior officials at the War Office, for months.
1: That Friday, 5th of January
0: 1906,
1: Hugay came to Reppington's house and stayed to lunch. Reppington handed the Frenchmen a list of 11 questions, exploring the ways the French and British armies would work together if war broke out with Germany. They included the extraordinary proposal that the French would seize German Togoland and the Cameroons, while the British helped themselves to German East and South West Africa and the German colonies in the Pacific. Nice! Huguet clearly took Repington seriously. The following Friday, the 12th of January, Huguet was back in London having already canvassed French opinion, all the way from the French generals to the French Prime Minister. On the carve-up of German colonies, Huguet reported laconically that, quotes, from a military point of view, the operation would be easy to carry out and the intention was to do it. But much more important, he said, perhaps lowering his voice a little, the French were making contingency plans to counter a possible German invasion through Belgium. They expected the Belgians to put up a bit of a fight, but if such an invasion were to occur, it would, Huguet reported, be, quote, desirable for the British to send across a couple of army divisions within five or six days to fight alongside the French.
0: In his account of these events, Reppington writes that he relayed Huguet's responses that very same day to the government's key strategic Committee for Imperial Defence. Using the committee's own records, David Owen claims that by the 16th of January 1906, just four days later, Grierson and Huguet had already agreed the broad outline of a plan. If Germany invaded France through Belgium, the British would send an army of 105,000 men to fight alongside the French. Given the long-standing enmity between the French and the British and the equally long-standing friendship between the British and the Germans, that was, to say the least, unexpected.
1: But what's really surprising is that practically no one in the British government knew what was going on.
0: In December 1905, a senior British army officer initiated talks with the French about sending an army to defend France if Germany attacked. It was not government policy. In fact, hardly anyone in government knew what was going on. The former Conservative Prime Minister Arthur Balfour had commissioned a report on the possibility of British action on the continent shortly before his government fell in 1905. The Committee for Imperial Defence had discussed it in August 1905. But the new Liberal government under Henry Campbell Bannerman didn't seem to have picked up the trail before calling an election and becoming engulfed in the election campaign.
1: The new Foreign Secretary, Edward Grey, was apparently not informed about the talks until the 9th of January 1906. He didn't give his formal permission for them to proceed until the 15th of January and didn't appoint Grierson to do the talking until the 17th. But that was already a day after Grierson and Huguet had agreed the outline of a plan. By the end of the month, it was still only Prime Minister Campbell-Bannerman, King Edward VII and Richard Haldane, that's Grey's friend and the Secretary of State for War, who'd been told about the talks. No other minister. Who knows whether even these men knew exactly what had been so rapidly agreed between Grierson and Huguet?
0: In his book, David Owen reproduces a long memo, written actually in 1911, which looked back over the talks between the British and French armies. It shows that the plan that Grierson sketched out with Huguet was polished up and presented to the British Foreign Office in July 1907. It then got banded about in secret government committees from 1908 to 1910. Most people regarded it as nothing more than a theoretical exercise. But the army hunkered down, working out every detail. We usually laugh at the Germans for working out their Schlieffen war plan down to the last railway timetable. But the British army were doing exactly the same thing setting out every technicality of sending its little force to Belgium to fight the Germans. Even laughed Barbara Tuckerman, the historian, to the places where they were to drink their coffee. Even so, by 1910, barely half a dozen British government ministers had got to hear about the plan. And they don't seem to have taken much notice.
1: Perhaps their neglect is less surprising than it seems. Antipathy between the French and English was pretty mutual. The Foreign Secretary Edward Grey made airy speeches about the feeble French army so feeble that Grey claimed the French and Russians might be forced by the Germans into signing up to a pan-European alliance against the British. It was nonsense, but there was enough suspicion surrounding German foreign policy to give it some semblance of believability. From 1905, the Germans had been making noisy, if fruitless, forays into North Africa. Since 1898, the Germans had also been building three new warships a year, which they stepped up to four in 1908. After 1906, the new ships were dramatically bigger than before. The British press made a loud fuss, screaming that the Germans were bent on a naval race to outbuild the British Royal Navy and steal the empire. Actually, as we shall see, it was all hot air. However, it loaned the spectre of German aggression at least an appearance of reality. So for the few British ministers who were told about the Anglo-French army plan, having some sort of contingency like this possibly one day, to support the French, tucked away in some dusty filing cabinet, was neither really here nor there.
0: Whatever the British army was up to, British diplomatic attention was focused on a problem that was much more pressing and much more real. This is the problem that the school textbooks never mention, the heavyweight reason the British went to war in 1914. It has to do with the situation in Persia.
1: Since 1905, the British Army had been vigorously working up a plan to fight alongside the French if the Germans invaded their country. It gave the British Army a reason for existing and the glimmer of recovering some glory after the disastrous, not to say dishonourable, days of the Boer War. But British diplomats had much bigger fish to fry. Looking back on the years that led to the First World War, the Foreign Secretary Edward Grey commented that his main problem had not been Germany, Instead, he said, quotes, Persia tried my patience more than any other subject. It's the elephant in the room, ignored by every school textbook on the causes of the First World War. As you know, Persia is what is now Iran, which was the name it adopted in 1935. It stretches between Turkey and Pakistan, occupying the land bridge that separates the Caspian Sea and the Persian Gulf. It was then an impoverished country, but its geographical position made it crucially important. Because it was through Persia that the key road, rail and telegraph links lay to India, the jewel in the British imperial crown. Persia was so strategically important that the British army in India had surveyed every inch of it for fear of an attack.
0: Through the second half of the 19th century, Persia had been a growing headache. The problem was the Russians. They were steadily nudging south. their Islamic territories in Turkmenistan and Tajikistan and into Afghanistan, Persia's neighbour, even into Persia itself. And the further south they got, the more vulnerable India and its overland routes through Persia became. The British struggle to keep the Russians out of the region had come to be known as the Great Game. The issue was supposed to have been decided in 1895 when Britain and Russia agreed boundaries for the area. But what actually happened was that since then, the problem had only spread and grown more serious. The Russians began to push railways into the region. The most famous line was the Trans-Siberian, which reached the northern border of China. But another, the Trans-Caspian, ran along the borders of Persia and into the wildlands on India's northern frontier.
1: In the early 1960s, American historian Ira Klein wrote his groundbreaking studies of the situation in Persia at the turn of the 20th century. Since then, Keith Nielsen and other historians have pictured the men in Britain's Foreign Office and Army watching with horror as the Russian railways sidled closer. India was defended by the British Army in India, a mixture of local and British recruits. It was different from the British Army. Its commander-in-chief in in 1905 was Lord Kitchener, at that time England's best-known soldier. That year, he calculated he needed exactly... 211,824 men to keep the Russians out. Oh, and £20 million. That had gone up from 135,614 men the year before. Indeed, Kitchener went on increasing the figures every year. The plain reality was that it was out of the question for Britain to find that number of men or that kind of money. It was also clear to everyone that if the Russians ever decided to invade India, they could now get their troops there by train, much quicker than Britain could send reinforcements by sea. As Nielsen says, 10 years before World War I, Britain's proudest colony had already become militarily
0: indefensible. Well, you can see that the deteriorating situation in Persia only made this headache much worse. Persia had fallen into decay. The British loaned money there and did a bit of trade. British businessmen owned the imperial bank and had exclusive rights to print Persian money. But by 1900, the British began noticing more and more Russians turning up. Russian advisors surrounded Persia's notoriously corrupt rulers, the Qajar Shahs. Russian soldiers trained a Cossack brigade for the Qajar army. Russian loans replaced British loans. Russian surveyors and engineers arrived and began to build roads. They opened a steamship company. In January 1907, British Foreign Office's man on the spot wrote to Foreign Secretary Edward Grey that it all had the appearance of a secret Russian military operation. Well, if it was, Kitchener's army in India could not possibly do anything about it. In fact, one of Grey's first decisions in 1906 was not even to bother reinforcing the Indian army, whatever Kitchener said. Generals, after all, always insist they need more men. Lord Salisbury once remarked they would garrison the moon, if they could, to defend us from Mars.
1: Instead, Gray decided to do a deal with Russia. That's why Britain and Russia signed a convention in 1907. This convention was entirely concerned with colonies and intended to settle affairs in Persia, along with Tibet and Afghanistan, where the two nations' empires also ground up against each other. In Persia, in the convention, the Russians agreed to limit themselves mainly to the country's north – and the British to the southeast, The British army in India, Kitchener, breathed a sigh of relief. A small sigh.
0: But then, in May 1908, the Persian problem suddenly became even more perplexing. A London millionaire, William Knox Darcy, had been prospecting for oil in Persia. What well, he'd been prospecting ever since 1901. His men caught smallpox, fought off the local warlords, braved the torrential rain, suffered the roasting heat. And they found nothing. At the beginning of May 1908, Darcy was on the point of bankruptcy and he sent out orders to give up. Three weeks later, while Darcy's orders were still on their way, his men struck oil. It was at Masjid Soleiman in the southwest of Persia, much closer to the British sector than the Russians. What they had discovered was one of the richest oil fields in the world.
1: It couldn't have come at a worse time. In 1908, British-backed warlords and revolutionaries in the south were plotting to rid themselves of the Persian Shah in the north. In the north, the Russians were propping the Shah up with money and soldiers. Civil war was beginning to brew. In
0: 1911, the Russians sent an entire army to Persia and pushed the southern rebels back. Now the British were left clinging on to their oil, their roads, their cable to India, with nothing to rely on but a collection of local tribal Persian warlords. The old 1907 convention with Russia was in tatters. Great urgently had to come up with a new way to contain the Russian threat.
1: Now, what Gray would decide to do would depend very heavily on his attitude toward Germany. The reason was that the Germans were the Russians' most threatening rivals further north in the east of Europe. You have to remember that between 1795 and 1919, Poland had ceased to exist as a separate country. So Germany and Russia were immediate neighbours.
0: Now, as Norman Angel pointed out in that letter to the Times, the Russians were a very backward, if slowly, industrialising country before the First World War. The German Industrial Revolution, on the other hand, had been so formidable that German industry had rapidly overtaken the British. Germany in 1911 was an exceedingly modern, efficient country, bristling with the latest military hardware, and the Russians felt exceedingly threatened by it especially since the Germans did not want to see the Russians expanding southward into the Balkans, Persia or anywhere else. They regarded Russian expansion as their major foreign policy challenge.
1: This presented Gray with a straight choice. He could either try to keep the Russians friendly and onside in Persia by supporting them against the Germans on their western border and in the Balkans, or alternatively, he could contain the Russians by backing the Germans against them.
0: Now, you wouldn't have thought this was a very difficult dilemma, Britain and Germany had a long commercial and cultural friendship, whereas the autocratic Russians were widely unpopular in Britain. The fine German army was the perfect complement to Britain's strong navy. Together, they would have little difficulty in agreeing to keep the Russians in check and then putting a plan into action. The Russians would shrink at the very prospect. The obvious thing to do was to ally with the Germans. Every time when I was a teacher I made school kids imagine they were diplomats before the First World War and gave them maps and charts of statistics and the strategic situation. They always came to the conclusion that Britain should ally with Germany. It was the completely obvious thing to do. Any school child can and does work it out. But in reality there was a problem. Well, two problems. First in 1892 the French had signed a convention with the Russians promising to give each other military support if either were attacked well, that's not surprising, the French and the Russians have been friends and allies on and off since the 18th century and they both felt threatened by the Germans. The reason, however, this friendship was a problem for the British was that since 1905, the British army had, as we've seen, secretly and without any proper authorisation, been hatching their own private plan to send the British army to fight alongside the French against the Germans. And that implied that whatever the common sense thing to do, the British would end up allied with the French and therefore the Russians against the Germans.
1: Well, perhaps Jimmy Grierson, Woolly Robertson and the other army brass could be sent back to their corner and told to behave. Why should the British army search for a bit of quick glory drag the British into alliance with the French and Russians when alliance with the Germans was what the Persian situation obviously required? But
0: there was a second, potentially much more serious problem. By 1911, the British press and more important, the British Foreign Office, were in the grip of a bizarre and unreasoning anti-German hysteria, as we shall see next time at the History Café. For more on this story and others at our History Café, go to historycafé.org. There you'll find information about us, and also about further reading you can do. It's also a way to ask us any questions you might have.
1: Or contact us on social media at History Cafe Pod.